So, if you would turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 10, verses 46 through 52. It's page 847 there in the Bibles that are there in the chairs. Um, while you're turning there, I just want to ask you a question. Have you ever considered what it would be like if you were blind? You ever thought about what life would be like if you could not see? Like seriously, have you thought about what it would look like for you to get up and get here this morning if you could not see? Right? You wake up, you know, just going to the bathroom, going to your closet, change your clothes, going down to the kitchen, finding your food, going to the car, getting out of the car. Of course, somebody's driving you because you're not driving you if you're blind, right? I hope not. I hope not. Uh, you know, and then getting from the car to here. I mean, just think about all that it would take for that to happen. All the steps that you would have to memorize, you know, like, I've got to take 12 paces, then I've got to turn slightly left, and then I've got to take three more, and I've got to turn. Like, could you imagine what that's like? Or just having to use a cane to feel your way around, you know, so that you don't, like, slam into people or stuff or, you know, things like that. Or, or how you would have to rely upon the guidance of other people or, or, a, or a seeing-eye dog. You know, just the fact of, like, being there at a busy intersection and a dog starts to walk forward... I'm not going to follow after that. I'm like, no, you sit, Rover. You wait. I don't want to hear a thing, right? Or, or just trusting in your senses, right? Your ability to hear, your ability to smell, you know, your, your, your touch, your sensitivity to feeling to make sure that you go. It's not really a big deal because you're blind, but, you know, making sure you go in the guy's bathroom versus the girl's, right? You don't want to do that, even if you're blind. Um, you know, you have to trust in all sorts of things, right? But... Have you ever thought about the fact that your sight can often lead you to assume on certain things, right? Or make light of them or take them for granted. In some ways, our sight can actually make us blind. I mean, think about it. We don't have to pay as careful attention to directions because we can simply find a solution, right? Somebody tells us, hey, meet me here. You know, I, I don't have to be pay careful attention to how to get there. I don't really have to rely upon anybody. I can look it up on my phone. I can look for signs, you know, things like that along the way to get me there. Or you, you don't have to remember details, right? You're sitting in class. You can kind of zone out, and that's fine because you can go back and look up that information later, you know, either by doing a good thing and reading and, and studying your notes or, or maybe your Wikipedia, you know, you know, doing that or Google or whatever, right? But you have that ability to go back and look relatively easily and find those things. Or you don't have to trust, learn to trust in the guidance of other people because basically... I can take care of myself, right? You don't even have to listen because you're too busy trying to seek your own way. I mean, you know, you've probably heard that, that folks who are sight impaired typically have heightened other senses, right? Like, you know, to dumb it down for all you, you all are aware of like the Daredevil comics, right? And how despite the fact of being blind, Matt Murdock had these amazing like senses that give him echolocation so that he could perform all these, these amazing acrobatic feats like that surpass even Olympic level athletes and, and professional martial artists and master marksmen, right? Right? But did you also know that, that those who can't see are often more trusting of other people? than those who are sighted. And recent studies have actually shown that, that folks who, have, who at least were born blind end up using parts of their brain that are normally dedicated to vision in order to help with their recall. 
In other words, they have better memories. The truth is, our reliance upon our sight can actually make us blind. Less likely to remember, less perceptive, less trusting, poor listeners. We're going to see that this morning in Mark chapter 10, verses 46 through 52. It's a a familiar story to many. Jesus heals the blind man Bartimaeus. And we're going to look at three people this morning. We're going to look at those who can see but are blind. We're going to look at a blind man who could see. And we're going to look at the one who gave them sight, Jesus Christ. And I pray that as we do, that Christ would open our eyes this morning so that we could see who He is and what He has done, why He came so that we would long to follow after Him. But before we get into our passage, let's pray. God, I pray that uh, this morning that you would open our eyes. God, uh, we want to just begin by repenting of the ways that we have, have often assumed and been distracted by the things that we see, the things that we trust in because we, we use our eyes to rely upon them. God, I pray that you would help us by your grace to hear the truth and respond to the truth in faith that we would really see, not with our eyes, but with our souls, who Jesus is, why He came, and that it would make us willing to follow after Him. God, we thank You for Your grace. We pray that Your Spirit would be at work through Your Word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, Mark chapter 10, verses 46 through 52. Again, it's page 847 there in the Bibles in the chairs. It says, And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Hey, take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and he came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Let's first focus our attention on the blind. Now, Mark's account begins with Jesus and his disciples arriving in the city of Jericho, which is on their way to Jerusalem. All right, Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem. He's heading there. They stop along the way there at Jericho. Now, Jesus' journey began back in chapter 9. It began immediately following his transfiguration where he was there on the mountain with Peter, James, and John and he appears in his heavenly pre-existent glory. They get a glimpse of that. They're stunned and amazed and as soon as that is done, as soon as he revealed in all his glory who he is, he began to make his way towards the cross. And along the way he's teaching them why it is he came. He set his face like flint to head towards his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. And as they come to Jericho, a city of of biblical significance, Jesus' journey is coming to a close. Now apparently, 
Mark doesn't think that anything really essential happened in, in Jericho because he says there in verse 46, and they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho, so basically, bang, bang, here you go, we're moving on. But he really wants us to know, because he says it twice in the very same verse, Jesus was in Jericho. Right? That's significant. Jericho is the city that God destroyed back in Joshua with basically a trumpet march. You remember the story, right? You know, the Israelites all kind of gather up. They got the, the Ark of the Covenant. They're marching around once. On the seventh day, they march around seven times. They kind of give a big shout, yay, God, and then the whole thing kind of crumbles down, right? This city was later rebuilt a little bit further southeast, just to the edge of it, kind of overlapping a little bit, uh, in, in 1 Kings 16 by a guy named Bethel. Right, And it's existed kind of there, but it's never had the same sort of glory that it is. But Jericho is only 17 miles from Jerusalem. It's really close. It's basically the last stop in the ascent up the mountain towards Jerusalem that many people would take. Right, Jericho is, is, is located like seven or 800 uh, feet below sea level, where Jerusalem is some 3,500 feet above. Right, And so... Following Jesus on the way to the cross in itself physically as a disciple is a laborious, treacherous, hard, difficult journey. Right? It took stamina. It was, it was challenging, right? And there they are. They're going. It's a painful journey for the disciples to follow Jesus towards the cross. And as Jesus was leaving, he's, he's accompanied by his disciples and a great crowd. Now, this could have been the crowd that we've seen before. I mean, Mark has mentioned a crowd numerous times, ever since chapter 1 and every chapter subsequently, talking about this, this great multitude, this polyplethora of people that were following him around. And we saw that, that though this crowd was always around and always kind of amazed by Jesus, they were never following Jesus. They never really believed in Jesus, right? They loved being fed by Jesus, they loved being entertained by Jesus as they saw the signs and miracles and wonders. They loved how Jesus put it to the religious leaders of the day. Kind of like, yeah, that guy's awesome. Did you see him put that guy in his place? I don't have to do that either. That's sweet. Or they wanted him to be a political leader, right? To help them to just be freed from their, the Roman oppression, right? They kind of had all this mindset of like, this is what Jesus is. This is who we want him to be. But you know what? They didn't want Jesus, they didn't love Jesus. They didn't follow Jesus because Jesus is Jesus. They followed him because and loved what they thought that he could be for them. And that's why they followed. So it could be that crowd, but it could also be a different crowd because people kind of came and went. Maybe some of those people were there. But something else was happening historically at this time. This, this takes place right before Passover, right before the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is one of three times a year where the Jews were required to take a journey to Jerusalem. And one of three main ways that they would get there is from Jericho, right? And they would journey to Jerusalem to celebrate, to, to praise the Lord for all that he had done for them, right? And so they would make their way. It's often through Jericho on their way to Jerusalem, climbing up this arduous, laborious journey to make their way up the mountain to Jerusalem. And as they would go, they would sing these songs of ascent. Okay? They would sing as they go. Now, I want you to remember that because we're going to come back to it. Okay? 
But three times a year they would make this this slow and laborious journey up to Jerusalem. But alongside the road, on the outskirts of Jericho, just outside the city, right, as people are passing by, the crowds are journeying to Jerusalem for the Passover. This would be a perfect spot for a beggar. Poor, blind beggar, right? And that's where we find Bartimaeus. He's there on the way of this crowd as they're going to serve the Lord. This is a great opportunity for him to earn some money, right, as he's, as he's sitting there. He's not going to Jerusalem. He can't go to Jerusalem. He is physically unable to make that journey. No matter how much he would like to, he can't do it. Right? He's on the roadside. He's alongside. He's begging. He's poor. He's marginalized. He's an outsider. He's considered a nuisance. Which is why we see in verse 48 that many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. It's not that they disagreed with what he said. It's that they simply didn't care. They wanted him to sit down and shut up, right? Just be quiet. This poor blind beggar was annoying. He was a disgrace to them. But you know, he wasn't to Jesus. And I hope he's not to us. Because you see, Barnabas holds a special place in Mark. This is the last healing that Mark makes mention of in his gospel. The very last one. And of all the times that we've seen Jesus heal people... Bartimaeus is the only one that's given a name. Everyone else is anonymous. Jesus healed so many people. And they're anonymous faces in a crowd, but not Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus has a name. Perhaps it's because he or maybe his father, Timaeus, were known by Mark's audience by the original hearers, by the original readers of this text. Bartimaeus means son of Timaeus, so maybe Timaeus was somebody important, or maybe they knew Bartimaeus. They've heard this story, right? Maybe they're like, oh yeah, I remember Bartimaeus. He's that guy that Jesus healed. Yeah, how's he doing? Is he still seeing all right? You know, is his sight still there? You never know. But in addition to being the last healing and the one, only one named, Mark's account of Bartimaeus serves as an inclusio, or a bookend, with chapter 8, verses 22 through 26, where Jesus heals the blind man of Bethsaida. This is meant to surround, or sandwich, theme that kind of comes up often, right? This, uh, this content that's in the middle, right? And it speaks into what happened in between. In both of these cases, you see that... that They begin in exactly the same way. If you look at verse 22 and you look at verse 46, it says, And they came to, and then a location, Bethsaida, Jericho. Both men are blind. In both cases, Jesus stops as he's going, and then he has compassion on both of them, healing them from their blindness. But if you remember, I said back when we looked at uh, chapter 8, verses 22 through 26, that this first healing helped to open Peter's eyes to see who Jesus really was. Because immediately following that, you got verses 27 through 30, where Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. His eyes are open to see that. And between these two accounts of Jesus healing blind men, Jesus focuses on two things. He's teaching his disciples why he came. 
that he would suffer many things, that he would be betrayed, that he would die, that he would rise again. Basically, it could be summed up in chapter 10, verse 45. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And second, Jesus taught his disciples what it truly means to follow him. That you must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. That if you want to be first, you must be last of all. You must be a servant of all. You must be a slave of all. But you know, instead of listening, instead of understanding, instead of, of having eyes to see what Jesus was really getting at, the disciples were still blind. What we see is that, that Peter actually tries to rebuke Jesus, right? The, the disciples, they rely upon their own strength and abilities to, to heal a boy that has an unclean spirit. They argue over who is the greatest. They neglect the poor and marginalized. They try to prevent a man from doing good in Jesus' name because he doesn't acknowledge their authority, right? They question Jesus constantly, and they jockey for position and for glory. And after all of this teaching, after all of the ways that Jesus has demonstrated visibly who he is and why he came, after three years of living with Jesus and seeing every miracle and every sign that he ever performed, Peter, James, and John, even beholding Jesus' preexistent glory, they are still blind. They still don't get it. They still don't See, their sight has blinded them. And the reality is, we're the same way. So often we think, you know, if I, if I could have been there. You ever come to the text and said that, you know, if only I lived in Jesus' day. Or if only I could see signs and wonders and, and miracles like that. You know, if, if only I could have eaten of that bread that he gave out. If only I could have seen the Red Sea part or things like that, then I would have believed. I would know. But take it from the disciples. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. They live with him for three years, seeing everything that there's possible to see. You're walking around with the Son of God, and you're still blind to it. Seeing wonders does not impart faith. Miracles only validate truth claims, and truth claims are spoken. Truth claims must be heard. We must respond to truth claims, not what we see. Do you realize that any time you see a response of somebody when they see something, that doesn't impress Jesus? Jesus is not impressed when somebody sees a miracle and they're like, hey, that's awesome. He's like, so what? It doesn't matter. Faith, which is active, comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. You see, our sight more often than not simply distracts us. It simply gets in the way. It simply kind of blinds us to everything that really God is doing in our lives here and around us, right? We're bombarded with thousands and thousands of images daily that really want to lead us away from the faith, not towards it, right? And even if it's not contrary to it, it doesn't really help. For example, how many times 
Are you motivated to read God's Word and to pray because you see a Bible? Right? Would it really impress that upon you if you're driving down the road and you see a billboard with a, just a Bible on it? Right? You're like, ah, I need to get into that thing. Yes. Or right here on the, t- on the chair. I mean, look at a Bible in front of you. Does it really motivate you to get into it? Honestly. Now let me ask you this. Say you're, you're walking through your living room and your Bible's sitting there on the coffee table, but right next to it's your cell phone. Which is more appealing to you at that point? What if your Bible's sitting on top of the TV that's on? Right? Which is going to catch your, your gaze a little bit more at that point? You see, the Bible's a good thing to see, but it really it doesn't impart faith. It doesn't, it doesn't motivate me to read it just because I see it. Right? The only way I'm going to see it and be motivated is because it reminds me of the truth that I've already heard and believed. Right? I see it and then I'm reminded of passages like Psalm 119.25. My soul, it clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. Or a few verses later, Psalm 119.107. I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. It's knowing that. In that moment, it's not seeing the Bible that imparts faith to pick it up and read it. It only validates the truth that you have already heard and already believe. Seeing is not believing. Believing is seeing. We must walk by faith, not by sight. And that's not blind, stupid, unintellectual faith that they're talking about. Everyone who can see in, in this story, besides Jesus, is absolutely blind. Regardless of what miracles they have beheld. You cannot see truth. You must hear it. So if you're looking for a miracle in your life in order to, to believe, hear me out, it, it's not going to work. If you've got some big decision or decisions to make and you're just kind of waiting for that burning bush before you make that decision, let me tell you, that's not going to bring about conviction, right? Because it's only as good as you can keep your gaze on that sign. That sign goes away and you're constantly looking back and you begin to question that decision. And then the one after that, and then the one after that, and then the one after that, and after that, and after that, and after that, and and you can't make heads or tails of it because you're trusting in something that you saw that you forget, and it's not good enough. Only in what you hear and believe that is rooted in conviction. I'm acting on this because I know it to be true, and I know it because I heard. Trusting in your own ability will, to see will only leave you blind. Just like the disciples and just like the crowd. Okay? And so that's the blind. Now let's turn our attention to the one who can see. In Mark's historical account of the blind man, Bartimaeus, is the only one who could see clearly. Right? He could see more clearly than all the rest. It says there in verse 47 that when he heard... That Jesus of, it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, Son of God, have, Son of David, have mercy on me. You know, no doubt, as he had been begging day after day after day along the roadside for some three years, 
He's heard these stories about Jesus. He's heard these stories about how this, this man had, had healed the blind, that he had, call, he, he, had, he had cleansed people of diseases and disabilities. He'd cast out demons. Perhaps he had heard of how the, Jesus had caused the deaf to hear and the blind to see and the lame to leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute to sing for joy. All the things that Jesus did. All Isaiah 35, 5 and 6, by the way. Perhaps he even heard the stories about how Jesus fed thousands, about how Jesus had calmed storms, about how Jesus had walked on water, about how Jesus had raised the dead, and how Jesus had even forgiven sin. And over time, after hearing story after story after story of Jesus of Nazareth, he began to believe that Jesus could help him too. But where did he get this idea that Jesus is the son of David? I mean, I, I thought that Jesus' dad was, was Joseph of Nazareth, right? Where, did, where does David show up, right? No doubt Jesus had gone from town to town preaching in the synagogue of the Old Test, from the Old Testament of the things concerning himself. Maybe it came up there, but so far in Mark, it's, it's been silent on this son of David. I mean, is, is Bartimaeus kind of like, she's kind of, crazy is he out of his mind I mean, what's the deal where does he come up with this idea of son of david well son of david is a title it's referring to a promise that god made to king david the king of israel some 1000 years before christ see god had promised that he would establish david's throne and that one of his offspring would rule over his kingdom, his nation, his people, in fact, nations, it says, forever. That he would be the king of kings. And that God would be a father to him, and this offspring would be his son. This was partially fulfilled in David's son, Solomon, but his throne wouldn't last forever. You see, Solomon and, and the ones that came after him, his seed, his children and grandchildren and so on, they all were sinners. They, were, they fell and eventually God sent them into exile, right? And so they go off into exile. There's no Davidic kingdom. There's, there's really no nation in Israel at that point. And eventually they, they get to trickle back to the promised land, but they never reestablish that throne. They never reestablish that kingdom. There is no king of the line of David. It's gone. It's not there in Jesus' day. Right? But yet, the people believed that by the grace of God, one day, a son of David, the rightful ruler of Israel, would come. And that he would be the Lord's anointed. He would be the Christ. He would be the Messiah who would deliver them from their captivity and from their oppression. Unfortunately, these people were looking for a political and military leader. They were not looking for someone like Jesus. Many wondered if Jesus was the Christ, right? Peter's even mentioned it. He said, hey, you're the Christ, the Son of God. He doesn't know what that means fully, but, but he said it. But Jesus is not what they expected. He is not what they hoped for. They were blinded by their own ambitions of what they desired Jesus to be. They thought the Son of David, the Christ, would come in power and might to gain glory and military victory so that they could become a great nation again. But Bartimaeus saw it differently. He says that the son of David would be one who gives mercy. 
He alone saw Jesus rightly. Bartimaeus understood who Jesus was and what he came to do. And so he wasn't going to stop crying out to Jesus. He kept calling out repeatedly, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And verse 48 says that as he did, many people rebuked him and telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. I mean, imagine the comments that he would have received from this crowd as they were passing by. Shut up, you stupid beggar. You are a disgrace. You are a filthy wretch. It's your sin that puts you here. Sit down and be quiet. I'd imagine that some of them laid their hands on him. Some of them pushed him down. They may have even kicked him or kicked dust in his face, trying to get him to be quiet. But he wouldn't stop. He persisted. He kept on going. And I wonder if these cries of Bartimaeus interrupted their songs. See, remember earlier I said that the people would sing songs of ascent as they would make their way from Jerusalem to Jericho, singing praises to God, thanking Him for all that they had done. And here's this this crazy blind man standing on the side, screaming out, Son of David, have mercy on me. They're interrupting our worship. He needs to sit down and be quiet. You, you can actually read the lyrics to the song of Songs of Ascent. Psalms 120 through 134 are these songs. And I want to I highlight a few of them because here's where the irony gets really, really thick. Okay? Remember what, what Bartimaeus is crying out. Son of David, have mercy on me. Okay? Keep that here. Right? <clears throat> and he's doing this despite jeers and taunts from the crowd as they sang words like this. Psalm 122. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house, that is, dynasty, of David. Psalm 123, Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. Psalm 132, For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Or Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in His word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love. With Him there is plentiful redemption. And He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. This is what they're singing. Singing about the Son of David. 
singing about their need for mercy. And there's Bartimaeus, the only one who understands what these songs mean. The only one who gets it. And he's pleading continually for mercy. And what are they trying to do? They're trying to shut him up. Praise God he didn't stop. Bartimaeus, as he has sat there year after year, has heard these songs. Right? He's heard the stories about Jesus. He has heard the truth. He believed and he pre- persevered in faith. Bartimaeus knew that he was a sinner. He tried to live his life without God. He desperately needed forgiveness from the Lord, the creator of the heavens and the earth. He trusted in the promises of God that his servant David would rule forever and that this son of God alone is the only one who could grant him mercy, the mercy that he so desperately needed. And he alone could redeem his people from all their iniquities. Bartimaeus understood this. And so Jesus hears the cry of this outcast, this wretched beggar. And unlike the crowd, Jesus has compassion on him. Jesus calls Bartimaeus to come. He doesn't care about his past. He doesn't care about his disability. He doesn't care about his poverty. He doesn't care about his sin. Jesus calls Bartimaeus. And then suddenly, the attitude of the crowd changed. Again, irony, man. Mark is so full of irony. Those who were moments before were just rebuking Bartimaeus were now saying, Hey, take heart, buddy. Get up. He's calling you. Yay for you. Come on up here. And they're probably thinking to themselves, Yay, we get to see Jesus heal somebody. Right? That's probably what they're thinking. But it completely changes. Bartimaeus, though, he doesn't care. He just, verse 50 tells us that he throws off his cloak. This is probably the only possession that he has with him. Maybe the only possession that he has. That's where he keeps his money, right? He gets up, he throws that down, he jumps up, and he comes straight to Jesus. He comes to the son of David. He leaves everything that he has behind, and he runs to Jesus. And then in verse 51, Jesus asks him, what do you want me to do for you? Does that sound familiar? Does that remind you of, say, verse 36, where Jesus asked James and John, what do you want me to do for you? James and John wanted glory. Bartimaeus just wants mercy. James and John, they come to Jesus and they say, teacher, the most common form of teacher, you know, didaskale, right? That's what they said. Hey, teacher. But... Bartimaeus comes and he says, Rabboni, which means master and teacher. It's much more reverent, much more respectful. James and John, they want wealth and power and position. Bartimaeus, humbly and reverently, just wants to see again. And so Jesus says to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and he follows Jesus on the way. Do you notice that? Jesus says, go your own way. And he follows Jesus on the way. The Jesus way now becomes his way. His sight was restored so that he could follow Jesus. The goal wasn't to use Christ to gain his sight and then he could go his own way and do his own thing. His goal was to see so that he could follow Jesus. Now friends, I have to ask you, 
Who are you more like? Like Bartimaeus? Or like the crowd? When was the last time you found yourself desperate for mercy? Let me ask you this. Have you ever? Have you ever sit back and thought about the awesome holiness of God? Right? He is perfect in all His attributes. He speaks and creates the world and everything that is in it. He owns you. He is the one who sustains your life, and yet you spend your life spurning Him, trying to live your life without Him, as if this is your world and you are God. And you have this, this inkling of a notion, you know what, things aren't quite right. I know that I do bad stuff, and I, I really, you know, I know that I've, I've transgressed some standard, but we put that off and we ignore it, and we go through life still trying to grasp the things that we can see and the things that we can trust in. (laughs) Do you feel that real shame for how you have rejected Him? For how you have denied Him? For how you have tried to live your life without Him? Do you realize just how much a debtor of mercy you are? Or do you see your sins as light and insignificant? Does your soul wait for the Lord as the watchman waits for the morning? Or do you just go through life singing songs that you have no idea what they mean? When was the last time that you praised the Lord for giving you spiritual sight? Or do you just take it for granted? Or does it cause your soul to rejoice so that you delight to follow Christ rather than time after time after time seeking your own way? Do you marvel at the fact that all of God's promises, promises from thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago, find their fulfillment, they find their yes in Jesus? Are you willing to go against the crowd to call out to Jesus? Or in reality, would you just let him pass by? <laughs> There's so many things that we can meditate on in this passage. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. And I'm tempted to, but I, I would be doing a disservice if I didn't mention the third and most important person in this passage, which is Christ, the Savior. You know, I've said it before and I'll say it again, that the only hero in the Gospel of Mark is Jesus. Jesus is the only hero. Bartimaeus is not the hero. Jesus is the hero. Mark never takes his eyes off of Jesus. Never. Not once. This is not a story about the reward of having enough faith. This is about Jesus, about who He is, about why He came, and about what it means to follow Him. This is about... Jesus is the son of David who came to give mercy and who gives sight to the blind so that we can cry out and follow him on the way. That is what this is about. Now some people come to this text and they make a shipwreck of the faith of many. They treat this heretically and abuse it and twist it, suggesting that if you have enough faith, then you are entitled for Jesus to make you well. Like if you just drum up enough determination, if you just work out in the gym of faith and just get all lathered up, that God is obligated to answer your prayers. And they lead many straight to hell with good intentions because they can't do it. 
I have prayed so many times that I could see. I have prayed so many times that I could walk. I have prayed so many times that I could hear. And I can't. I can't. There must be something wrong with me. I must not have faith. That is not what this passage is about. This is about Jesus. Don't ever take your eyes off Him. You know... We can't muster up determination that God would somehow be obligated to answer us. And you see that in pagan religions, but you don't see it in true Christianity. This is not about determination. Bartimaeus understood who Jesus was and why he came. His sense of desperation came not because he really wanted to see, but that he knew just how badly he needed mercy. He wanted to see so that he could behold and follow the son of David. Not go his own way and do his own thing. Jesus did far more than simply restore Bartimaeus' physical sight. With the single word, Jesus said, go your way, your faith has made you well. And that word, made well, is sozo. It means saved. Bartimaeus, your faith has saved you. Jesus didn't just heal his physical sight. He gave him spiritual sight. He gave him faith. This is the work of Christ. You can't will this up any more than you can cause yourself to see. You can't do it. This is the work of Christ. Friends, faith is not simply a means of getting Jesus to do what you want. Faith is a means of getting Jesus. Do you understand that? You do realize that Jesus didn't heal every blind man, right? That he didn't restore every disability. You think of three years of Jesus' public ministry. How many people would have died in that period of time? And Jesus only raised three from the dead, right? Jairus' daughter, widow of Nain's son, and Lazarus. Everyone else died. But Jesus did promise that he would raise them all and they would stand before him in judgment. You see, Jesus didn't perform miracles in order to help people to have better lives in the here and now. Right? Jesus did this to reveal who he is and what he came to do. So that like Bartimaeus, we might receive mercy. That our eyes might be opened. And that we might follow the son of David on the way of Christ. Friends, seeing will not do that. Only believing. So I don't know where you are today. I don't know where you're at, you know, in terms of what you believe about Christ. But this text implores you to respond. You cannot wait for a burning bush. You cannot wait for the signs and miracles and wonders that you think are going to give you faith. Because in the end of the day, take the testimony of the disciples that it won't. Act upon what you have heard. Respond to the truth that you have heard. Believe it. Love it. And be given eyes to see. I'd like to close with a quote from Anselm of Canterbury. says, Lord Jesus Christ, let me seek you by desiring you, and let me desire you by seeking you. Let me find you by loving you, and love you in finding you. 
I confess, Lord, with thanksgiving that you have made me in your image so that I can remember you, think of you, and love you. But that image is so worn and blotted out by faults and darkened by the smoke of sin that I cannot do that for which I was made unless you renew and refashion it. Lord, I am not trying to make my way to your height, for my understanding is in no way equal to that. But I do desire to understand a little of your truth, to which my heart already believes and loves. I do not seek to understand so that I, might, I can believe, but I believe so that I may understand. And what is more, I believe that unless I do believe, I shall not understand. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that this morning that we would be given eyes to see. Not because of our physical sight, but because we have heard the truth of your word and your spirit is working within us to cause us to respond. God, I thank you that you are gracious and patient and merciful with us. But Lord, don't let us assume upon that. Don't let us take it for granted. God, I pray that we would have eyes to see just what debtors of mercy we really are and that we would run to like Bartimaeus, and cling to Jesus, crying out, Son of David, have mercy on me. May we long for you more than the watchman longs for the morning. May we find in you the forgiveness of all our sin, all of our iniquity. And I pray that each one of us here would respond today to your truth. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.